Welcome to Reading with Joy. This summer, we're reading Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, a book about a man who lives in a house that loves him. So get yourself a cup of tea, sit down, and let's begin. And what do you think it meant? I asked. Nothing. I don't think it meant anything at all. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Reading with Joy, my summer book club where we are discussing Piranesi by Susanna Clark. We are getting close to the end. There's only two more chapters, and this week is kind of the big reveal, and it's a little bit of a horrific, terrifying, suspense-building um, reveal that we have this week. And to discuss it, I am delighted to welcome on the show someone who's been on my podcast many times and last year was on my podcast to talk about Wrinkle in Time. So welcome back, Haley Stewart. Thanks so much for having me, Joy. It's so much to ha- it's so much fun to have you. Also, I'm sure people say this all the time, but um, I'm always tempted to say Haley Carrots because that's what you are on a lot of... <laughs> On a lot of social media. And I even, uh, the other day in a plow conference call, we were talking about, you know, authors, this and that. And someone went, what about Haley Carrots? I mean, Haley Stewart. (laughs) Um, I have um, people I know only online because my husband is Daniel, but his nickname is Bear Man. And so (laughs) that's like what he's known as online. So people are like, yes, we always think of you as the Bearman Carrots's family. (laughs) Uh, well, but um, we're the Stuarts in real life. Are, in real life, are, we are the Stuarts. <laughs> in real life. Well, um, perhaps this is a good introduction to tell us a little bit more about yourself in real life. Sure. So in real life, I have four kids ages two to 12, and I am an author and a podcaster. I co-host with Christy Isinger, the Fountains of Carrots podcast, which is a lot of fun. And then I'm a fellow of the Word on Fire Institute. So I do some content creation for them, some writing, some filming projects, and I run their Word on Fire book club, which is a lot of fun. I You seem like you're doing so many fun things these days. I just, I wish I had more time on my calendar because everything you post, I'm like, oh, I want to be in the book club. And <laughs> weren't you guys do? isn't, aren't you doing somewhere a book club on Piranesi this summer? Am I making that up? Yes, we are. So the, for our podcast patrons, we are doing Piranesi this summer. We're going to get started in July. We just finished up Memento Mori by Muriel Spark, which I had never read before, but Christy oh, had. Mm-hmm. It's delightful and I highly recommend it. And Joy, you would love it. So it's a also, it's a mystery. It's mm-hmm. a mystery and the entire cast of characters save one person are all septuagenarians. Is that people who are 70 or older? Mm-hmm. So it's the entire yeah. cast is seniors and uh-huh. they're delightful. It's so fun. That sounds like so much fun. Also, um Muriel Sparks. Isn't that my literary lookalike? Yes. Okay. She's your doppelganger. I sent you the picture, right? So when she's younger, (laughs) she looks like you. Like so much. You just need to have poofier hair. If you could do a bit more I could make that happen. You just need some (laughs) some products, some hairspray to really poof that hair. And then you can be young Muriel Spark. Absolutely. (laughs) No, it was funny. When you sent that to me, usually when someone's like, oh, you look like this person. 
you're like, oh, yeah, sure, maybe I can kind of see it. But Muriel Spreck, I was like, no, that is like looking at my own face. That's really weird. <laughs> it, is, it was uncanny because Christy and I send out little reflections about the book we're reading and we usually do it some image of the artist or of the author. And so I was looking for pictures. And when I saw one of her younger self, it was uncanny. It was definitely you back in time. Yeah, Yeah, it's strange. She was Scottish, right? I believe so. So maybe it's that Scottish heritage. Maybe we're distant cousins related. Mm -hmm. Gotta be. You've gotta be. (laughs) Gotta be. Uh, Well, it's so fun to get to talk to you about Piranesi because, of course, I Joel read this aloud to me. I obsessed over it for three weeks, wrote a book review, and you wrote a book review also shortly before mine. So when we, when I was going to do the book, I was like, oh, I need to talk to Haley because I feel like we both have um, and things to say. So before we talk about this actual chapter, what was your general experience and impression of reading Piranesi? Well, I was ready to love it because yeah. I loved Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, and I'd been waiting for Susanna Clark to write something else for so many years. I, every couple, every few months, I would like look up on her Wikipedia page and be like, is she writing a new book? Like what's happening? <laughs> Cause I need more. Um, so I was excited to read it because I love her, but it's so different from Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell in a delightful way. So the beginning is very disorienting. You don't know mm-hmm where you are, what time you're in. Is is it this world? Is it another fantasy world? You just have yeah. no idea. Um, but it's so interesting and it's beautiful. And I loved from the very beginning the kind of question of, is the house really kind and beautiful mm-hmm. like the man called Piranesi thinks it is? Mm-hmm. Or is he, you know, is this, is he, is he crazy? Is he making it up? You know, you just don't know at the beginning what's happening. And I think you can still ask that question at the end. Um, mm-hmm. But I loved it. It's so different. The structure is so weird, so different. And then it gets so exciting. It gets to be a page turner about halfway through when you start getting these little hints and then the chapter that we're discussing today, the big reveal. Oh yeah. No, I mean, there comes a point where you just have to finish the book and everybody's, I've had a lot of people already saying this where they've been like, I, oops, I read the whole book. You know, you're (laughs) just doing one chapter at a time, but um, yeah, it is. It's a really interesting book because there's kind of this, this, like you said, a disorientation and a little, it's a little bit of a psychological thriller, but it's also this beautiful poetic, um, emotional experience. And so it's a, it's very unique. I can't think of any other things like it. And it's interesting mm-hmm. because um, I think some people, I might even say most people really responded to that, to the aura and the world that it invites you into. But I know um, some readers, and I'm sure some who are listening, find it really like distressing to be in this world mm-hmm. of Piranesi. And, um, but I think something I appreciated it for is that it is disorienting it does put forward that question of is the house loving and it's something that is mysterious and that's inviting you that like complicates that primary assumption that Piranesi seems to have in the very beginning um and where we are right now that's really contested 
Now, I liked that because because you're trying to kind of act, ask yourself, what is true? How can we figure out what's true? I liked that because I think that when I think of the world and when I think about my posture towards the world, um, the world is disorienting. There are many things that come into conflict with our sense that the world or God or other people, that there's some fundamental goodness at the heart of it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I love stories that ask, is it possible or reasonable to still believe you're a beloved child of the house, still believe that the house is kind and it's kindness is infinite. Um, Even when you experience um, wicked things like we're about to Mm -hmm. experience in this chapter. And so I found that really compelling, um, which is why I think it stuck with me for so long. But maybe that's a good end to this. Yeah, maybe that's a good end to this week's chapter. I'll try to give a quick little overview. I always try to do that. Um, It's not hard to give much of an overview in this one because it's it's kind of a compact scene. So he is remembering. Now, we've had references to 2012 since the very first chapter. And people in the comments and stuff have been, when they were talking about his beautiful, you know, opening descriptions of the house and stuff they're like but why does he have 2012 like why does that come up why does it why does it there seem to be this connection with a more modern world and this is the first time the first scene that we have which is him recalling this experience um on 2000 in 2012 which as we shall see led to him being in the house whatever the house is um this is the first real event that happens that we know about that's narrated to us not in the house so it opens up and um, it's him as a um, as this writer. He's been researching the transgressive academics, which makes me laugh because transgressive, transgressive as a word is one of my advisor's um, favorite <laughs> descriptors. So he's always, you know, he writes a lot about um, the transgressive in, in uh, theological art, you know, and how that can reveal more about. So there was something humorous to me about like, oh my gosh, that's something that my... Um, my advisor would say, but he's, so he's researching this, he's researching Lawrence R. Sales, who of course we know is the prophet, the, the dreadful dude. And, um, he, so he goes to Valentin Ketterly's house and he has this kind of interview with him. And Valentin Ketterly is a, um, uh, retired academic who's now been practicing as a psychologist. I, um, I laughed, I chuckled to myself aloud at the line where he says, you're an academic, I understand, I said. I was an academic, he explained with a slight weariness. I don't know that anyone, I love uh, being a scholar, and we can talk more about this in a little bit, but I don't know if there's anyone who doesn't occasionally feel a slight weariness um, from the world of academia. <laughs> um, so Valen- um, so Ketterly used to be an academic, and then he went into psychological practice, um, and they have this little back and forth about orange sales, and then um, he acts like he doesn't believe any of it. He says, you know, he's just this manipulative man and he doesn't he doesn't believe that there was any meaning in all of the language of the labyrinths and stuff. But then he asks um, Matthew Rose Sorensen if he can do the ritual. And then he does the ritual and Matthew Rose Sorensen awakens in the house and Ketterly laughs and laughs and laughs. It is like, a textbook villain moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, yes. After it is, it is really. And so um, it's funny because I read an interview with, uh, I think it was in the New Yorker with Susanna Clark, where she said that she wants to write 
a book someday that's the opposite of a horror novel, because a horror novel is where at the heart of this whole reality, you discover something, you know, slimy and bad and disturbing. Uh, and she wants to write a book where at the heart of the book is something joyful and good and beauteous. But we are kind of having a little bit of a horror novel moment where we're like, oh my gosh, he's been trapped in here <laughs> by this crazy man. And, um, and so that's what happens. Also, it's worth noting that Ketterly is the same name of Andrew Ketterly and Magician's Nephew, who is the magician who performs an experiment on Diggory and Polly, because uh, he's been given these rings that reach other worlds, but he's too, um, he's too cowardly to do it himself. So we see those kind of parallels uh, with Magician's Nephew and Ketterly, and it seems that somehow Matthew Sorensen is in on an experiment, but we're not exactly sure to what extent it is that. So that's what happens in this chapter. What were some of the things that stood out to you as important? Well, I think now, once you've read this chapter, you can look back on the man called Piranesi's experiences with the other, you know, what he called mm -hmm. Ketterly before knowing his name. And as you're reading it the first time, you do, you, at first you're not sure what the deal is with the other but as you get to know him more and more, you start to feel uneasy and then very skeptical. You start to see, okay, this is not, he doesn't care about Piranesi. He's not being truthful. He's manipulating him. Like you can tell um, little yeah. by little as the reader, but I don't think you're prepared for how horrible he is and the horror that um, Matthew Piranesi, the beloved child of the house, the, the realization that he has forgotten, you know, that this, mm. that he's been very unsettled at the idea that he has not been able to remember and that he might mm. be going mad. And so it's kind of confirmation that yes, I've forgotten even how I got here. I had forgotten who my enemies were, which mm. is really terrifying. Yeah, it is really terrifying. And that's a really important theme in this chapter too, is memory. Because I think, I didn't count, but I think it's at least three, maybe four or five times, Ketterly says, I have an excellent memory. Um, and that this is kind of a point of pride, something important about him. And uh, it's also interesting because whatever the house is, we know that the other people have gone into it. It affects their memory. It makes them forget things. It makes them go crazy. And so there's almost the sense that the, the other is being, or Ketterly is being like, well, I'm impervious. There's something about me that can't be touched by the house. I have this good memory. Um, mm -hmm. but, but that's interesting because what does it say about Ketterly and what does it say about Piranesi that he forgot? Mm -hmm. You know, it seems, yes, it seems that it's something that Ketterly is really insecure about, you know, he's, mm -hmm. or he's fearful. He's fearful that he'll lose memory. Um, which is why he only comes mm -hmm. very briefly. He stays less than an hour always. He never stays longer than that because he doesn't want his memory to be affected. He doesn't go, he doesn't stray very far from the entrance because he's fearful, which is another Uncle Andrew from mm -hmm. Magician's Nephew connection. He's too afraid mm -hmm. to do it himself. Um, so I think that that's kind of where his mentioning of memory is coming from this fear of losing it you know he's heightened his awareness is heightened of his memory and mm -hmm. whether it's good or bad 
And so it makes you wonder as the reader, what, at what point do you start to lose memory? How does the loss of memory happen when you're in the house? Does it happen all at once? Does it happen little by little? Do you lose things far in the past, but you have short-term memory? You know, it just makes you start to wonder exactly how this loss of memory works and why Matthew seems to retain more memory than other people did. Mm -hmm. Like it mentioned James Ritter, that he kind of lost all of his memories. And Matthew still has some. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's interesting, too, because, um, you know, Ketterly makes this very stark statement in this chapter. He says, nobody comes out alive, which, of course, isn't true because Ketterly comes out alive. And we know the prophet comes out alive. Um, But there are bones in the house and there are people who have not been answered for. And so there's the sense that it could be dangerous. We know that, you know, as as we have these intimations of there's floods, there's it's not a safe place. Um, but what's interesting is that even though Matthew Rose Sorensen, the man called Piranesi, does have this loss of memory, as you said, he does retain some of it. And he's also, um, you know, James Ritter, he's the one who's like reduced to almost, he almost can't function as a human being. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Piranesi, something about him is resilience, that he becomes able to look after himself and and to even look after other people and to fish and to sew and to he's there's something resilient in him um and and even that if it is madness whatever comes upon him in the house makes him gentler and more loving and more patient and more open and that's a really curious thing what is it about him or his posture in the world that's made him able to not only survive and maintain some sanity, but even become more humane in Mm -hmm. odd ways and where it just destroys the people. And Lawrence even kind of notes that when he Mm -hmm. comes to visit and he says, you know, you wrote me this letter a long time ago and I said, I didn't want to see you because you really sounded like an ass or something like that. But now (laughs) you're really quite charming. Um, (laughs) And he is because, I mean, he describes himself as a child of the house, a beloved child of the house. And I think it's his childlikeness that is redemptive. Mm -hmm. And he is, you never get the sense that Ketterly loves the house at all, Mm -hmm. like not in the slightest bit. And Piranesi loves the house. Like he, that's what prompts all of his um, research and his curiosity and interest, it's this affectionate love for the house Mm -hmm. that really motivates all of that. And Ketterly doesn't have any of that, which means he doesn't understand the house. He can't understand the house. And he doesn't appreciate the house. Mm -hmm. And so Piranesi, I think it's almost his childlike affection and trust Mm -hmm. that allows him to almost thrive in this incredibly difficult situation. He believes that the house is going to take care of him. Mm -hmm. And at first, I remember my first reading of this, when he kind of expresses this childlike trust in the house and the statues saved me and then the birds 
gave me a message and I was like, well, this guy is clearly lost his mind, but this is how he's coping by being all alone. Mm -hmm. Um, Kind of like Outcast. Mm -hmm. Is that the name of the movie with with Wilson, the the volleyball? volleyball, Yeah. yeah. Um, But then as you read, you start to wonder, well, maybe he's onto something. Maybe he sees what Ketterly definitely doesn't believe any of that. Mm-hmm. But Ketterly, maybe he's wrong. Maybe Piranesi's right. And I think yeah. as you get further on and further on, you start to, that starts to be confirmed. Yeah, well, and I think that's that's an interesting question too, because it boils down to this question of, okay, so obviously the way that Piranesi or Matthew Sorensen is introduced to the house is not a good one, right? It is horrific. It is, he has been kidnapped and shuttled into this world. But that doesn't necessarily mean that the world itself um, is either A, fake, or B, evil. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, here's the first question. Do you think that the world is a real place? Do you think the house is a real place? Yes, I do. I do think yeah. it's a real place. And what's your basis for thinking it's a real place? Um, I think that because... Piranesi is a reliable narrator and I don't think he's mad but then also there's evidence to back up I mean I think things especially like Sylvia's film where she's filmed it and you know different things to show this is a this is a real place this is a real thing that happened it sounds crazy but even the way the book describes Lawrence's theories you're kind mm-hmm. of like, well, that sounds like it could be real. I mean, it does sound crazy, <laughs> but it kind of makes sense in some way. Um, it's, yeah. Yeah. So it's I, I do like, think it's real. Yeah. I do think it's, I do think that we're meant to be getting these, like, I do think there's external things that indicate that the house is real, right? Like the film, the fact that there's all these people who, Either he's able to generate a mass hallucination that everyone experiences in the exact same way, right? Mm-hmm. Which would seem fairly unlikely. Um, it seems like there is, that this is some kind of real place. And it does bear, it's interesting because like with the Lewis kind of um, connections, it's very like Charn in one sense, because it's this old mm-hmm. kind of labyrinth, labyrinthine, although of course um, only Catterley and Sales see it as a labyrinth. Um, they see it fundamentally as a labyrinth, whereas um, Piranesi sees it as a house. Mm-hmm. But it's also very like the wood between the worlds um, because um, uh, it's a place that makes you sleepy and forgetful. And even the the name that's talked about that's invoked when he's doing the ritual is Adenoranamus or something like that. And that character is famous for getting into um, a hallway between worlds, which I actually think might connect it to the universe mm. of Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell. Because you know how there's the Hall of Mirrors where where it's really dangerous and you shouldn't go yes. there because you can get lost and you can forget yourself. Mm-hmm. But it's it's like a wood between the worlds. Mm-hmm. So I do think I do think it's real. Um, but I also think it's an interesting it's an interesting thing to think about. Like usually, if we have a traumatic event it's it's not common that we become like more well adapted to the world <laughs> do you know what i mean like we we do mm-hmm. things to cope and to be okay but 
Piranesi, it creates this, like, his encounter with the world, he begins to feel comfortable and at home in it. And I think it's interesting because, like, when you're talking mm-hmm. about that love that he has, um, Catterley says it didn't mean anything. It's meaningless. He thinks that there's this lost power he's still trying to discover. Whereas Piranesi, like, naturally sees meaning in everything. And mm-hmm. from our perspective, like, with the encounter with Albatross, does have the power in a weird way. Um, mm-hmm. But it's because he loves and he can give himself into that in a way that Ketterly can't. Mm-hmm. Um, and and I think it seems... Go ahead. Just what you were saying about seeing meaning, seeing significance in things, seeing that if there's a house, then there's an architect. Mm-hmm. And kind of having this... Um, yeah, this trust that everything that happens isn't just chaos. Mm. Um, I think that it's almost like he's rediscovered a medieval worldview, mm-hmm. um, which I think what has always fascinated me about the medieval worldview is that noticing significance in all sorts of things. You're the color of the green leaves of the trees. Oh, Mm. it makes me think of hope and the virtue Mm. of hope. You know, everything is pointing to something else. It signifies something. And we've completely lost that as moderns. You know, we don't Mm. think things have meanings. We're like Ketterly. And so I think what I love about Piranesi's character is he's kind of without meaning to, you know, just he's fallen into this world and he's developed this sense of enchantment mm-hmm. um, that he does think that the world he lives in is enchanted and is connected and wants to speak to him, not just mm-hmm. that he can talk to the birds, but the birds can talk back. Um, and I find that really appealing, mm-hmm. the concept that we could re-enchant ourselves with the world, you know, become mm-hmm. re-enchanted and... I think that, I mean, Lawrence kind of talks about that in, in Piranesi's journals. He talks about Lawrence talking about the world talking back to the ancients, mm-hmm. um, that that used to really happen. Yeah. And so I think that that's an interesting mm-hmm. concept to think about. Could we live in the world as if it is enchanted? Yeah. And I think what's interesting about that, too, I talked with Malcolm Guide about this a couple of weeks ago. But is that with the language of enchantment or re-enchantment, the, the language of re-enchantment implies that I can do something to make the world be a certain way again. When, of course, the world is exactly the same as ever it was. And the house is the exact same place. And both Ketterly and Piranesi encounter it. Um, and their posture towards it is what changes their capacity to perceive things in it. Mm-hmm. They are not doing anything to change the world itself. And it reminds me, so I was, I was doing a little research. We talked a lot about Barfield and his whole notion of original participation, which is kind of that like return to more medieval way of looking at things. And what's interesting is Barfield was um, also, he was a Christian, but he was also, and he gets kind of in trouble for this sometimes, probably rightly so. Um, he was also what's called, and I'm, I'm going to read you the definition of this because it sounds very like Lawrence Arnsdales. Um <laughs> He was also, he was one of the inklings. He was also an anthroposophist. That's so many syllables. Um, And it was a 
philosophy that postulated the existence of an, an objective, intellectually comprehensible spiritual realm, uh, whose followers aim to develop mental faculties of spiritual discovery through a mode of thought independent of sensory experience, uh, which when I hear that, it just sounds very similar to Lawrence Arne Sales. They're all trying to just achieve this way of encountering the world again. Um, but it has this very kind of, this kind of control, this desire to manipulate and um, kind of work their way back to the world being the way they want it to be through their own actions, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, and of course we see that Ketterly and Sales can't enjoy this beautiful place they've discovered because they're always trying to control it, um, manipulate it, understand what it is. And um, Malcolm gave this really good language of it's knowledge for control versus knowledge for relationship. And mm -hmm. Piranesi has that knowledge of relationship. He has this affectionate relationship with the world. And when I look back on the 19th century, this is just an aside. I always, there's so many, you know, they'd had basic, we don't think of it this way because we think, oh, well, everyone's gotten more and more secular. But really, things were very secular in the 19th century. Um, we had similar levels of religiosity, sometimes even lower than they are now. And so in the 19th century, or in the turn of the 20th century, you had this huge kind of like you had anthroposis and theophysis, and you had Jung being like, we all just need to get in touch with the collective unconscious. And it was all this kind of impulse of like, the world is so disenchanted, we need to do something to re-enchant it. Um, but you often have people getting into some really messed up stuff because they were trying to manipulate it and control it. And the reality is, and this is, I think, what Piranesi experiences. And I say Piranesi because I think um, Matthew Sorensen hadn't experienced this, is that the world is enchanted and it is we who have kind of a spell over us. And um, there's nothing we can do to re-enchant it. And the more we try to exercise our will on it or try to control the world, the less we will be able to respond and receive what is inherently there. And that it's actually this kind of like scientific version of spirituality where we're trying to like quantify and execute on the world that keeps us from being in that loving reciprocal relationship where we just assume that the world is enchanted. Mm -hmm. Sorry, that was quite a, um, that was quite a <laughs> monologue. <laughs> no, that was great. And actually it made me think of something that doesn't seem connected at first, but I think is very connected. Yeah. Um, Pope Francis's encyclical Laudato Si about care for our common home. We've already um, been talking about that. Have you? Have you? Yeah. Um, and it it talks about this concept of throwaway culture, mm -hmm. where we view the world through these lenses of consumer. You know, how can we use what's in front of us? How can we get what we want? Um, and that affects everything from how we use the world's resources to how we use other people. And I think that that would relate to Ketterly and Lawrence, both how do they use the resources of the world and how do they use other people rather than loving yeah. them, rather than having relationship with the house, mm -hmm. rather having relationship with other people. Um, and one thing that Pope Francis says in this encyclical is rather than a problem to be solved, the world is, um, and I'm going to paraphrase because I can't remember exactly how he says it, but is to be approached um, as a joyful mystery. Yeah, and I think Which that is exactly that, how Piranesi experiences. Yes, the house. yes, he experiences that as a joyful mystery. He doesn't think he knows all the secrets of the house, but he's so interested to know, and he has this sense of awe and wonder, a posture. And you're talking about what is our mm -hmm. posture towards. 
the world. He has this posture of joy and wonder that has no desire to control. You know, he's kind of shocked when he hears Ketterly say that one of the goals of getting the secret knowledge is to be able to control lesser minds. And he goes, why would I ever want to do that? Um, He's so sweet. But he has this idea of instead this wonder, this mystery, and this relationship. I'm a child of the house. Mm. You know, it's my it's my parent. It's my caregiver and my nurturer, which mm. is something that um, Ketterly can't ever understand. And I was about to say, you know, he's so interested in charts and graphs and numbers, but so is Piranesi. He's so yes. interested in charts and numbers, but it's because it's helping him it's helping kind of increase his wonder and joy mm, in the yeah. mystery, which I think is true of all of us. You know, if we know the mm. names of the trees, then when we mm. see them, we take more pleasure and we're like have more affection because I know that it's this kind of oak, not that kind of oak. And I just, mm. you know, you have this knowledge that makes you connected ha- mm. more in relationship with the world and therefore with the creator. And so I think for Piranesi, that's the goal. And for Ketterly, it's this throwaway consumerist view. Yeah. yeah. And he's just kind of going through test subjects until he finds ones that works. At least that's kind of the impression we get. Mm-hmm. And and so you see that both with the world, but then also, like you said, with his relationships with other people. And I think that connects to another thing that we talked about before we got up, before we started recording, uh, which is this kind of complicated relationship Susanna Clark has with uh, ac- with the academic impulse, with the scholarly impulse. Tell me a little, what were some of your thoughts about that? Well, it's interesting because it seems like she has multiple critiques going on here. And if you're familiar with Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell, you know that she, it seems to me like she's making fun of um, philosophers, philosophers in academia, because instead of actually doing magic the magicians and Jonathan Strange and Mr. Norrell just kind of have all these arguments and research on former magicians they don't actually ever do magic and I think for her she's kind of showing modern philosophy it's people writing papers about philosophers but not necessarily doing philosophy so I think that's kind of one of her critiques is that Mm -hmm. um it's kind of this meaningless grind going through what's been done but not actually creatively offering anything new. However, that can't be her critique of Lawrence and Ketterly because they're definitely doing something. They're not just shilly-shallying with with things that have been done. But it's this kind of, um, I think I think goes back to this consumeristic idea. It's not born out of love. Mm -hmm. There's not this idea of, I want to know about this because I love it so much. I, I recently, I've been writing a book on Jane Austen's novels, and I was recently listening to this absolutely fantastic keynote that Dr. Cornell West gave at JASNA about um, Jane Austen. And it was just the most beautiful talk because you could tell he loves Jane Austen so much. And his passion for her work, his delight in her novels and her characters and his just admiration for her 
was the most compelling, exciting thing. And it was just so wonderful to listen to because it was born out of love. And I think that's academics at their best is when Mm -hmm. they're loving things. Um, And so I think that's what Susanna Clark also thinks is good scholarship, Hmm. which, sorry, there's like a, um, it's not really a tornado, but it's tornado warning testing time in my neighborhoods. (laughs) There's like weird sirens going off, but it's fine. We're not about to get blown away. It's sunny. Um, But I think that that's also what she thinks. You know, when you look at what Piranesi is doing, you know, he's Mm -hmm. a scholar of the house. He's keeping notes and comparing them and doing research and making discoveries all because he loves the house so much. And Mm -hmm. Ketterly, it's just the opposite. It's this emptiness. Yeah. I also love knowing that um, Piranesi has had his notebooks from the very beginning, you know, because we have the sense of where's he getting the notebooks in the house? (laughs) But we know that he started, you know, the uh, Ketterly literally tells him to put his shoulder bag on before he goes because he wants him to go. Um, but yeah, I think that's totally right. And I think it's funny, uh, for me reading, reading both of these works, because like, I love John Strange, Mr. Norrell has footnotes, which everyone, (laughs) if you, if you do academia, you know, like a really well-written sassy footnote is like the best feeling in the world. Um, but it's this funny thing because I don't even know how to articulate this, but being an academic is this really like conflicted thing because everyone you know will whine about it and be like it's exhausting and I'm way behind but then they also wouldn't do literally anything else for the most part like the people who stick around Mm -hmm. um, because it's not exactly an easy world to be in and I know that she's probably surrounded by a lot of those sorts of people because um, she's done a lot in Cambridge and stuff Um, but I think you're right I think that you see both the best and the worst of scholarship on display in this book because the other thing that Sales has is that he's just a real manipulator of people. And academia can be a world in which you just do it to acquire people and trample them underfoot and get your little team and be against other teams. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas Piranesi has this, he cannot help but be a scholar because he just has this this impulse, this this irrepressible compulsive desire to record and understand um, but it is based in love. And I think that that is a beautiful thing. Um, and yeah, I would love to do like, I was about to say, I'd love to do a PhD on <laughs> like um, on academics in popular literature, because she would be such an interesting and kind of the way it talks about it. And you should write a book it. on it. You've already, you've already got I your should. PhD. I've already got a PhD. I don't need to think that way anymore. Why would I ever yeah. want to do another one? Just jump straight into a fabulous book about it. There we go. Yeah. No, but I think you're right. I think the best, the best knowledge is born of love. And, um, and there's always a tension with that. Cause it's like the Lewis essay in myth became factory says the more we think, the more we're cut off from the things we're thinking about. And so, you know, when I think about when I experience a toothache, um, how can I write anything when I'm experiencing a toothache, but how can I know what pain is if I'm not experiencing a toothache? Uh, so I think there's a little bit of that going on of Piranesi, but Piranesi manages to both have the toothache and write about it. Like, I feel like that's the, he is mm-hmm. both the one who experiences and the one who transcribes. So um, 
Well, I guess we're kind of getting to the end of, I think we have said all we can say before without giving away. Yeah. I don't want to do any spoilers, but it's getting, it's about to get so good. (laughs) It's about to get so good. Everybody keep reading. I had several people be like, I definitely like, if you hadn't have recommended this book, I would have been like, this is a horror novel. What's happening? But you just need to keep going. We're about to get the most exciting part. Um, (laughs) So it's good. This has been so much fun, Haley. Thank you as ever for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. It's a treat to discuss this one. I haven't got to, I was discussed it with my husband, Daniel, because he read it right when it came out with me, but I haven't really got to discuss it with anybody else yet. Yeah, it's such a, it is very rich and there are many levels um, to, to explore. Also, one final fun fact from my scholarly brain, the, the weird name that I can't pronounce, Adindoramus or whatever it is, was one of the first, um, people on Roman coins that one of the first Brits on Roman coins. Oh, in the interesting. So I don't, I don't know the significance of that, but that mm-hmm. is who it was. So now did you um, also say that that name popped up in Jonathan Strange? Is that I right? could almost swear that it did. I haven't been able to find that. I need to like mm-hmm. get a digital version and, and flip through, but I'm pretty sure it did. Interesting. So, maybe it's in one of the footnotes, one of the many, yes. many. But yes, yes. <laughs> maybe that's that's something. But the idea of a wood between worlds uh, is definitely in um, John Strange Mystery mm-hmm. World because the mirrors, the land of mirrors. So mm-hmm. I don't know. There's many conspiracy theories that could be had. <laughs> okay, well, one um, of my dreams is to get to talk to Susanna Clark someday. I'm just oh, me too, such man. a fangirl. She's me if you're listening, too. Susanna, we love you. <laughs> we do. We love you mightily. I know. It'd be so, such a blast. Um, Haley, before you go, where can people find all the exciting things you're doing? Sure. Well, people can follow me at Haley Carrots on Instagram and Twitter. Um, a lot of my writing's up on the Word on Fire blog these days. I have a old blog, but I've neglected it. But it's called CarrotsForMicklemas.com. A lot of my writing's there. And my podcast is Fountains of Carrots. And my book that's published is called The Grace of Enough. And then I've got a few books coming out over the next couple of years, but they're not available for pre-order quite yet. Okay, excellent. Well, um, everyone go look up all of Haley's wonderful things and uh, tune in next week for The Wave with the lady editors at Plow. It will be very fun. (laughs) Thanks everyone for listening.